All right, well, let's go before the Lord with a word of prayer. And Heavenly Father, we just ask you once again as a church here in Shelbyville Christian Assembly, we just ask for your presence. You say where two or three are gathered, and we just trust in that. We have more than two or three here. So we know, Lord, that you're here to speak to us. I just ask you will open all our hearts and to listen to your word, to be attentive, and to be willing to obey and to change and to be edified. And we just thank you that you'll do that for us as we come before you today. In Jesus' name we pray. So if you have a Bible, we're back on Acts chapter 2. So I want to pick up where I left off last time. Yeah, I hear everybody's pages rustling at, at prison. They got this uh, overhead. It's got the, I mean, you name a verse and it's up there in two seconds. So you never hear anybody turning their Bibles. I'm like, and I didn't know it was back there for the longest time. I'm like, what's the matter? You guys don't look at your Bibles anymore when we preach? And here they, they just look at the screen now. So I told them, I said, just grab a Bible and move the pages just so I can hear it. <laughs> it's a little disconcerting. You know? But here we got, the, we got the leaves turning. It's good. So before we look at our, our verse, you know, uh, you know, maybe you've thought about this, but I'll have you think about it if you haven't, that God has designed humans we, we have a need for fellowship. It's built into us. He's designed it into us. So people that are loners and are people that I've heard them say, I don't, I don't need to be around anybody. You know, they don't realize that the contact they have with people, even if, even if it's limited, is the only thing that keeps them sane. Because for a while, the big thing was they even made a movie about it, Mountain Men. Well, look, even the Mountain Men, they'd be up in those mountains and they don't want to be around people. But you know what they'd have to do every now and then? get down and have a big party with each other because that is the way God has designed us, right? Because solitary confinement, cutting off somebody's contact with people is never considered a blessing. It's punishment, isn't it? So I had a class in college, and the name of the class was Great Books. I had to take Great Books 1 and Great Books 2. And as the name would suggest, we had to read some great books. And they were. And then we'd have class discussions and test about him. Well, one of the great books we read was Robinson Crusoe. And I, was, I never read that book, and I was like, okay, we're going to read it. It's a pretty thick book, Robinson Crusoe. So if you've never read it and you're a person that likes to read, I would say you would enjoy reading it. It has a Christian theme. It's really a very good and edifying book. So in the book, Robinson Crusoe, as most people know, he becomes shipwrecked, and he's on what he believes is an uninhabited island. And, you know, later he finds his friend Friday. We all know he finds Friday. So what I'm getting to with all that, and our, our, our teacher, here's how he conducted our class discussion. So he asked the class, he says, I'm going to give you two choices. So the first choice is, would you rather be on an island like Robinson Crusoe for the rest of your life, and you would have everything you needed to live comfortably on that island. You'd have wild game, luscious fruit, clean water, shelter, and so on and so forth. And he, and he told our class, and you would also have a Bible. You'd have a Bible there. And so the second uh, option he gave us was you could be in prison for the rest of your life with a friend you chose. And he added it had to be the same sex because we were, it's a college class. So it couldn't just be any friend. And you would have in that cell, though, you would have nothing but the basics. You'd have what they get at prison, bland food, a cot, a toilet. And you would have to stay in that cell with that person for 23 hours out of the day. And they let you out an hour just to walk around. So that was our choices. 
And he went around room to room and asked everybody what they would say. If the majority of the people said, what would you think? They wanted to be on that island. Because they're like, man, you could roam around. You got all this space. You could run and walk. You can have your Bible. I could get deep with God. I've really been wanting to do that all my life. And that was what everybody's saying. So he gets around to me. And I told him, I said, uh, well, I would rather be in the prison cell and I don't need to be with a friend of mine. You can put me in that prison cell chained to my worst enemy. And I mean, that kind of raised a few heads. <laughs> and he asked me, okay, so why did you say that? And I said, well, because of what I'm telling you today, because God has made us to be social beings and to be alone for the rest of your life would be maddening. We're not made to be that way. And I said, the other thing, I'm a Christian. And I said, what is, what is our purpose here as a Christian, to live like hermits on this earth? I said, this, you know, I said, so this guy's my enemy. Give me my enemy. I'm good with that. Because then I can witness to him. I can be like Paul. And when he's converted, I'll have a great time in that cell for the rest of my life with a fellow Christian, fellowshipping. So the majority of the class, in about 20 minutes, everybody was on my side. <laughs> they really were. Somehow you're a hero. Because they just hadn't thought about it that way. You know, everybody thinks, man, just people are bugging me. I'd like to just get deep and go away and be, well, God hasn't made us that way. We're going to see today we really need each other. So we can have our time alone. We need that too. But we really need fellowship. So, you know, God's created man with a great need of fellowship with others. And think about it now. Heaven, what is heaven going to be? It isn't going to be some we're isolated out, you know, strumming our harp on some planet by ourselves because we got our own little planet. It ain't going to be like that. It's going to be a place of perfect fellowship in the spirit. And we get glimpses of that here now, don't we? When we have that take place here. And there's going to be the great fellowship banquet that's called the marriage supper of the Lamb. And John wrote this in Revelation, in Revelation 19, you don't have to turn. I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, and as the voice of many waters, as as the voice of mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife has made herself ready. And Jesus himself said of this great supper, he said, I say to you that many will come from east and west, and they will sit down. Rob was talking about this with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, sitting down and having fellowship with all the great saints you've always said you wanted to spend time with. You'll have all eternity to do that. So all the saints from all time in heaven, they'll live in perfect harmony in the eternal state. You're going to have perfect love. You'll get perfect respect, harmony, care, and friendships that will exist forever. Nobody's going to be a Judas to you in heaven. That ain't going to happen there. Those are all here. But in contrast to that, you know what hell is going to be? It's going to be a place of zero fellowship. It will be the ultimate place of solitary confinement. It really will. It's going to be utter darkness. You know what utter darkness means? There is no light is a gift from God. And in hell, there will be no light. They will no longer see people in hell, no longer see a smiling face, no comforting touch, no sharing of meals like we do now. It's going to be a terrible place, isn't it? And that's the contrast there is to heaven. 
And we want to avoid that. But let me say to everyone here, as the writer of Hebrews says, but beloved, we are persuaded better things of you, things that accompany salvation, though we thus speak. So can I get an amen that we're, he- we're all headed for the marriage supper of the Lamb? Thank you. I think we needed that. <laughs> and I believe we are. So let's read our text here again. Uh, we're looking at Acts 2, verse 41. They that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. So we said last week that God has placed here in the book of Acts, here Acts 2.42, the foundation for his church, the foundation that will enable it to stand against the gates of hell. And it consists of these four pillars, the apostles' doctrine, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayers. And we said what God has joined together, let not man put asunder. Yet don't we know that many churches are smashing the pillar of sound doctrine and They're replacing the pillar of prayers with a two-by-four. That's just not really good support. And as a result of that, a lot of churches are weak. They're not standing as a light to the world, and they lack power. But, see, I believe God has given us these four pillars in Acts 2.42 as a foundational principles to build on. And like we said, their order that they're put in is there's a purpose to it. They're just not randomly set here. So we said the apostles' doctrine has to come first because it is the standard for all that we believe, practice, and experience as a church. It defines, the apostle doctrine defines and shapes the other three pillars that follow it. And if it's removed, if that doctrine is removed, the whole house will fall. You can't cut off any one of these four legs or four pillars and think it's going to stand. All four of them are critical but especially the Apostles' Doctrine. And our church here is to be, we said, the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. That's 1 Timothy 3.15. But, you know, if you read this entire chapter 2 of Acts, it is an amazing chapter. So we just read in verse 41 that 3,000 souls were soundly converted, baptized, and baptized in the Holy Spirit with the evidence of speaking in tongues. 3,000 Spirit-filled believers right then. I mean, that is unbelievable. I mean, we're doing good. If a church has 3,000, I mean, man, we think that's huge. But just 3,000 people, boom, happened off of Peter's sermon. That is amazing. And how did it happen? We're start- it was the apostles' doctrine, wasn't it? Peter's preaching. That was where that doctrine began. You know what he used? He used text out of the Old Testament. That was their Bible at the time. They didn't have any New Testament. So God anointed this ex- exposition. He's opening up these Old Testament texts to these Jews and showing that Jesus is the Christ and the Lord, the Messiah. And through that, God brings conviction, true conviction, repentance, and faith in the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus. So listen, read verses 16 to 36 if you want a good lesson and how to interpret messianic prophecy. That's what you have right there. And one thing I want to add here, it's interesting to note, Gordon Lindsay said this, that when the law was given by Moses when he ascended from the mountain, do you you go back and read that account. You know how many people died? 3,000 when the law came down. 
But when the Holy Spirit was poured out at Pentecost, on the, in the day of grace dawned on the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, we have 3,000 beings saved. That's interesting, I think. So now we're looking at this in Acts chapter 2, and we've got the phenomenon of 3,000 souls that are filled with new life. New life. They're totally changed people, these 3,000 people. Totally changed. They've experienced a transformation from wicked sinners that are dead in sin. They all were that. And this transformation took place to where now they are new creations that are now spiritually alive. They were dead, and now here they are alive. What are we going to do with these people? It's new life. It wants to express itself. It does. I mean, a baby starts expressing itself, doesn't it? Immediately. And how do they do that? So we have verse 42. The beginning of that, it says, They continued steadfastly. Or better translated, it would be, They continually devoted themselves. Think about what it's saying there. They had a willing hunger these new converts that have just been filled with the Holy Spirit and given new life. Something's happened to them. This life wants to express itself. And so they're saying, hey, we are willingly, continually devoting ourselves to these four pillars. That means every day. So they didn't have to be browbeaten or coerced into hearing the word, fellowshipping, and praying. They wanted to, and they did it constantly. Look down in verse 46. What does it say there? This is how constantly they did it in verse 46. And they continuing how often? Daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart. <laughs> what a church. Praising God and having favor with all the people. And as a result of that, it says the Lord added to the church every day because of their testimony. And these people were alive. And others could see it. Their relatives, their friends, people they did business with, they couldn't hide that life. What are you doing? I'm down to the temple. I'm going there to pray again. And hear this word. What word? <laughs> it's changed my life. I was dead. I was a wicked sinner. But this Lord that we thought was under a curse because they knew the verse. You think about it. These Jews had heard Deuteronomy where it says, it doesn't just say cursed is every man that hangs on a tree. It says in Deuteronomy, I believe it's 21, cursed by God. And so they would have said, man, that dude's cursed by God. That's why it was a stumbling block for the Jews that Jesus was crucified. And they're saying, oh, no. We know now this one that was crucified, that we crucified by wicked hands, he wasn't cursed by God. He's been raised from the dead. That's what Peter's proven from the scriptures, that that's what would have to happen to the Messiah they were looking for. And so they see that. Ha, it's a joyful thing for them. And guess what? They could not get, as newborn babes, they couldn't get enough of that apostle's doctrine. Couldn't get enough, wanting it daily. And the second thing they couldn't get enough of was fellowship. And that's what we were reading there in verse 22, steadfastly in the apostle's doctrine and fellowship. And so what is fellowship? How could that be defined? So we know... We, most of you probably have heard the word fellowship is the Greek word koinonia. That's kind of common knowledge. But it's the idea of sharing and having a common purpose or interest. That's what it means, sharing and having a common purpose or interest. And this, this fellowship, it's a spiritual bond that's created between saints 
by the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, and it's done by the, it's a work of the Holy Spirit. He baptizes us into this body, doesn't he? That's the, that's the way it works. So what brought those 3,000 people into fellowships and acts? I've already said it. It was Holy Spirit-empowered preaching, wasn't it? And each of these people, because of that preaching, they heard that same sermon by Peter, didn't they? And so they shared a faith, a common faith in the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. They all experienced repentance from sin, didn't they? Because they said, what should we do? And what was Peter's answer? Repent. And then he said, and be baptized. So they were all baptized together, weren't they? Which marked them out. Baptized believers. That's what happens in a lot of nations. These countries, these Islamic countries especially, you get water baptized, buddy. That's the step where you are marked. And it can mean death a lot of times. And so because of that, they're brought in to the fellowship of this local body. They become the church at Jerusalem, don't they? That's what they were. Members of the household of God now. Members of a new family. God just brought 3,000 babies into his family. Newborn babes, didn't he? So it's the same for us here at SCA, right? We're brothers and sisters. Why? Because we believe those same truths, and we all have the same father, don't we? The same father. He's given birth to us, hasn't he? He has. We all share his nature, and we, like them, we have through that, we have a common spiritual bond with each other. So I like the way the ESV translates 1 John 5, 1. It makes a little more sense. The King James, I mean, if you read it 10 times, you can make sense out of it, but it's a little muddled. But in the ESV, 1 John 5, 1, at the end of that verse, it says, Everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. Let me repeat that. Everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. So if we love the Father because he has given us the new birth through supernatural means by his spirit, what it's saying is then we will also love his other children who are our brothers and sisters. So it's just like you have a natural love for the members of your earthly family. You know, John is saying there, you will love those redeemed by the Lord Jesus Christ, the ones you have the same father with. Because it's that family resemblance that you love. And this is best illustrated, I think, by the friendship between Jonathan and David. So, you know, after David had defeated Goliath, Saul has him brought to him, right? And he's asking him, Who, whose son are you? Where are you from? And probably asked him a few other things. And so Jonathan's standing right there with him, and he's listening to this conversation. And he's seeing David. He has just seen what David did. And listen to what it says in 1 Samuel 18.1. It says, And it came to pass when he, David, had made an end of speaking unto Saul that the soul of Jonathan was knit with the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Now, why did Jonathan love David as his own soul? Was it because he was gay? And the only reason I say that is because that is a verse that the gay and homosexual crowd is using now. And I'm saying you almost want to wash your mouth out after you say it, right? Because it is so far away from what the text is trying to teach, what they're perverting it and trying to make it teach. Because here, here's what's going on there. This is why he loved David as his own soul. In the previous chapter, Jonathan had witnessed 
David's fearless courage and zeal for the Lord God of Israel, hadn't he? And he watched David single-handedly defeat Goliath, not because he was a good stone thrower, was it? It's because of his faith in the God of Israel. And so Jonathan is doing what here? He is recognizing a brother believer in the Lord. And he sees, hey, the Spirit of God is living within this man like he is me and directing him. And they had a kindred spirit. Kindred is a good word. That means of the same family, the Holy Spirit. And here's the thing. Here's the reason why they were of a kindred spirit. Because several chapters before the Goliath account, we read that Jonathan had exercised the same faith, zeal, and courage for the God of Israel that David did. He's saying, here's, here's someone that we are in tune. We've got the same father, the same God, the same faith. Jonathan and his armor bearer, they, like David, single-handedly defeated the Philistines at Michmash. And listen to what it says here. Here's, here's the faith of Jonathan, and it's just like the faith of David when he faced Goliath. In 1 Samuel 14, 6, it says, And Jonathan said to the young man that bare his armor, Come, and let us go over into the garrison, garrison of these uncircumcised. That's what David called Goliath. You uncircumcised Philistine. How dare you taunt the armies of the living God. And Jonathan's got the same spirit. Come, let us go over into the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for there is no restraint to the Lord to save by many or by few. So they both recognize in each other the same nature and the same father, and they were brothers, weren't they? And listen, that's true with us. And even it's true outside of here. How many of you have met people that aren't part of our assembly, maybe part of a denominational church, but you can tell after you talk to them for a while, they have the same father you have. They may not have all the same beliefs, but listen, there's a communion there where you can have with them and a fellowship. I mean, I've met them. So we can't just because somebody's some other denomination. You've got to be careful about that, how you speak about them, because that may be your brother you're going to be sitting down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob at the great feast with. You don't want to have to apologize to them there. <laughs> well, listen, I'm saying honestly, you know, I love to hear people's testimonies. I love to hear how God convicted them, how God brought them to repentance, how he opened their eyes to see that the Lord Jesus Christ was the answer to where they were and how the joy of their salvation was, and how they received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I love to hear that. And it creates a bond there when you hear people's testimonies in that way, doesn't it? Versus someone that you're just like, I'm not really sure by the way you talk and the things you do, and I've never heard your testimony. I'm not really sure you got one. Now, maybe they do. I don't know. But you know what I'm saying. Love to hear people. I'd love to hear that. Tell me how you are my brother and sister in Christ. I'm not going to be critical of how it happened. Everybody's different. Some people, it's immediate. Some, you know, God works with them over time, whatever. That's not the point. But everybody needs to have repentance given. Everyone has to have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ exercised. Everyone has to know that at some point, in some way, they have come from death to life. How can you come from death to life and not know it? It's impossible. It really, it was for me. I knew it. I knew how dead I was. And so out of that fellowship, hey, that is the basis for our fellowship, isn't it? This knowing that we have the same nature and father, that is the basis for our fellowship. 
And out of that fellowship comes the definition of fellowship. It's a sharing. So we're sharing the same nature, sharing the same father, and we share all kinds of things. One of the most prominent uses of koinonia, that sharing, is the sharing of goods, material things to help people out. And look, that's what we see. We're right here in Acts. So look at Acts 2. Verse 43 to 45, it says, And fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles, and all that believed were together and had all things common, and sold their possessions and goods, and parted them to all men as every man had need. And if you'll turn over just a couple more chapters to chapter 4, Acts chapter 4, and beginning in verse 32, it says this, and the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and of one soul. Neither said any of them that aught of the things which he possessed was his own, but they had all things common. And with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace. And here's this grace, this presence of the Holy Spirit is what made all this function. We'll talk about that later. Was upon them all. In verse 34, neither was there among them that lacked. Wow. For as many as were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the prices of the things that were sold and laid them down at the apostles' feet and distribution was made unto every man according as he had need. And Joseph, who by the apostles was surnamed Barnabas, which being interpreted the son of consolation, a Levite, and of the country of Cyprus, having land, he sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, I know most of us here know this, but there's some people maybe that are new or whatever. So this is not teaching, we know, Christian communism, right? So it's not teaching that everyone in our, you know, I'm not going to stand up here just next week. Look, I had a revelation. I want everybody to sell everything they have. We're going to pull it all together. We're going out to Wadi. We're going to buy us a big farm, and we're all going to live there. And everything's going to be equal. Equal amount. Of, we're going to give everybody an equal amount of food, equal amount of gas. Everyone's going to have the same amount of clothes, spending money. No one has their own car. It's everybody's car. You know, no one has their own clothes. It's everybody's britches. You know, that's the way that would operate. And that is not what this is teaching, right? So I'm kind of making fun of it, but I mean, literally, there are groups, and I'm saying every group that has tried to turn the book of Acts into communal living, it has ended up in a disaster. So ask the David Korsh and the Branch Davidians how that worked for him. And I could name a bunch of other groups. John Alexander Dowie, for those of you that know much about charismatic church history, started a city up north of Chicago that lived this way. Well, I will say this much for that group. This isn't part of my message, but... But out of that whole commune up there, they did have, I mean, he, tremendous healings were taking place. It's a long story about all that. And out of that group came uh, John G. Lay, Gordon Lindsay's family was there. I mean, tons of these huge healing ministries. So there was a blessing that came out of that, but it failed as a policy. It didn't work. So that's not what Acts is teaching here. And here's what you need to, to know to answer somebody like this. Listen. There are people in the book of Acts that were part of the church of Jerusalem. They still had houses because I could give all the verses. That's where they met. So everybody sold their houses. Where are they going to meet? So that's not what this is teaching. 
But what it is teaching, I like what one writer said about these believers in Acts, based on what we just read, that they had all things in common. No one had a need. They had a need. That need was met. Listen to this. I thought this was good. Their commitment, these people in the book of Acts, to Jesus and the work of the Spirit in their lives produced in them a completely new attitude to their property. No longer are they motivated to amass wealth for themselves, but they now view what they have as resources for the cause of Christ and for the care of people. I'll read that again if somebody wants to write it down, or you can get it from my notes, one or the other. But their commitment to Jesus and the work of the Spirit in their lives produced in them a completely new attitude to their property. No longer are they motivated to amass wealth for themselves, but they now view what they have as resources for the cause of Christ and for the care of people. So these early Christians understood what we know and we have been taught here through the years that Jesus owns everything we have, doesn't he? And as needs arise, we are responsible to meet those needs if we can. So sometimes you lost your job, you're, you know, you just don't, you're believing God to give rent money. Well, listen, don't give the rent money that you get in away, right? At that point, you're the receiver. So you get the message. But those of us where your businesses are doing real well, we have a responsibility if we know somebody has a need, don't you, to meet that need and not look for somebody else to do it. Or make it a church collection if you can fill that need yourself, right? Because that's an obligation. We're back to what we talked about, what fellowship's all about. That's an obligation out of family love. I'm not talking about blood family. I'm talking about your spiritual family. You have an obligation to your brothers and sisters in Christ. So Charles Spurgeon, who everyone's probably heard of him, the great preacher, he was once invited by this wealthy man to come preach in a small country church to help them raise membership funds to pay off a debt. And so he tells Spurgeon, and he writes to him, he says, well, listen, Mr. Spurgeon, when you come here, he said, you can stay in my country house, my townhouse, or my house that's by the seaside. And Spurgeon wrote back to him, and he says, sell one of them and pay off the debt yourself. <laughs> I thought that was good. Spurgeon had a sense of humor about him, man. I mean, that took a little boldness to write that, you know. But I liked that. I thought that was good. Because, listen, here's what the Bible says. The Apostles' Doctrine says, 1 Timothy 6 says this, Command, this is a command, those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God, who gives us richly all things to enjoy, he writes, let them do good that they be rich in good works, ready to give, and it says willing to share. Paul tells the rich to be willing to share. And that word share there is our word koinonia, fellowship, a sharing, a giving. He says you need to be willing to koinonia, he tells the rich people. Give what you have, share with those brothers and sisters that you know that have need. Share because it's your family. In other words, sharing is fellowship. You share your goods with somebody, you are fellowshipping with them. It's also the word that's used for share in Hebrews 13, 16. And here's what that verse reads. Do not forget to do good and to share. Koinonia. And listen what the writer of Hebrews says. For with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. 
So do you know what pleases God? The sacrifice of sharing your goods with a brother or sister that has a need. That is fellowship, one aspect of it. But it really is. And we don't really think of that as being fellowship, do we? Typically. But it is. Biblically, that is fellowship. But I'll tell you something now. Let me say this. Churches have cultures. So some churches are they're strong on prayer. They're strong on evangelism. They're strong on missions. So I'm saying this church right here, amongst other things, has a culture of giving. I've experienced myself in a big way when I had a need one time. I was overwhelmed with an envelope that's stuffed with over $1,000. I mean, I didn't make my needs known, but I'm like, I wasn't working. I couldn't work. And my bills are coming in, and I'm like, I don't know how I'm going to provide for my family. And next thing you know, here, here's that. And then next after that, I got $500 stuck on my thing. I mean, you tell people that, and they're like, they want to join the church. And I'm like, I'm not telling you where we're at. <laughs> no, they're coming here. But, but let me ask you a question. Do you know why this church has that culture? It's because of the man that stood here for 30-some years. That is why, because Brother Hamilton established that culture and he was a very generous and giving man and I heard some stories at when we had the thing out at uh, Jay's house after the memorial service some stories I've never heard before that he didn't tell that some people were sharing I'm like wow it's bigger than you thought and that's really good and that was the culture the culture here was the culture there back in the book of Acts wasn't it any needs were met and here's the thing it's not just some natural like, you know, we're going to send money down because the world, like the world does down to these flood victims. It's not that. This kind of love and sharing and fellowship is a supernatural event that takes place. It's the Holy Spirit that inspires this. So like it says in the book of Acts 4, there is no man among them that lacked. And that should be true here. Now, here's the thing, though. If you're like, well, man, you hear all that kind of stuff, I think I might just quit my job. No, that ain't going to work. If you're able and to work and you don't, guess what? You ain't getting nothing from here. If I have any say so in it, right? Because I got Bible for that too. So it's talking about anyone that had a need. If you can work and you're able and you're not, your need's not there. That's not mean, is it? It's what the word says, right? Doesn't work, you shouldn't eat. You don't need to give him your stuff. So biblical... Fellowship, we talked about it involves sharing, but not just sharing to meet physical needs. I think more importantly, I think this fellowship, koinonia, involves more importantly, not that that's not important, but meeting each other's spiritual needs. So we need that fellowship that is a giving and taking between brothers and sisters spiritually, and we need that more, I think, than we have realized up to this point. And I read this article by J.I. Packer on fellowship, which I thought was real good. And he said this, he says, we need to edify. It's a sharing, it's a back and forth. This is not just a one-way street, but he says we need to be edified and be edified. We need to do good and to receive good. We need to help and to be helped. And he said this, he says, we need to share with others what God has done for us what he's shown us about himself and how he has helped us out in trials. Why? So that we can elevate, enhance their fellowship with God by what we're sharing with them. And on the other hand, it's the reverse is true too. We need to hear from them what God has done for them so that we can be strengthened 
encouraged and instructed in our fellowship with God. So do you understand it's a two-way street that works there. We have need of edification and we need to edify others. That's why we need each other. And listen, we see that, that edification, what I'm talking about there, taking place in a beautiful way in the life of Paul. So if you'll turn, put something there in Acts 2 and turn to Romans. I do want us to see this. Romans 1, verses 11 and 12. And Paul writes this to the Romans. He says, For I long to see you, that I may impart unto you some spiritual gift, to the end that you may be established. That is, that I may be comforted together with you by the mutual faith both of you and me. So listen, verse 11, he's saying he wants to come and impart a spiritual gift, but it's not going to be a one-way trip the way he's doing this. There's going to be a mutual sharing, and that's what you have in verse 12. So listen, it's not as clear in King James again. Listen to the NAU translation of verse 12 in Romans 1. It says, that is, that I, Paul writes, may be encouraged together with you while among you, each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine. Now, that is quite the statement if you think about who is saying that. I mean, that is the Apostle Paul saying he's going to be encouraged by these Roman Christians' faith. And a lot of them were slaves or ex-slaves. And if you know anything about Paul, he had an unbelievable intellect. I mean, he comes from a high status in society as a Jew with where he was as a Pharisee. And he had performed what? How many signs and wonders how many people can say they've ever been to the third heaven and seen things they can't talk about? That is who the Apostle Paul is writing this. A truly great leader. God had to send him a trials on end to keep him humble. He'd seen so much. And yet, look how humble the man truly is. He's writing to these people and he says, look, I want to impart a gift. And he's not acting big about that. He goes on to say, so we can mutually share with each other. Back, I want to hear what you all have to say. I'm not above that. God can teach me from you. That's what he's telling them. He wants to be encouraged in his faith by their testimonies, what God is doing in their lives. So here Paul, he's saying, I'm not above being instructed by a new convert. That is amazing. So he's truly putting into practice what he went on to write later in Romans 12. He says this. He tells them, be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Spend time with what you think are lowly people. Do not be wise in your own estimation. So you think you're a person sitting out there, any of us, that we have all this spiritual insight and wisdom and depth in the word and all that other more than anyone else? All I can tell you is get ready because the humbling machine's getting ready to run you over. That's what's going to happen. So, you know, we at prison, we go into prison and we do things a little different in there, but it's a lot different in there than here. But, you know, in the middle of your sermon, guys will raise their hands. So sometimes you have to ignore them. And I'm saying sometimes they share off-the-wall stuff, and you got to correct that. And sometimes they're out to tell you they don't like what you're saying. But there are quite a number of times it's happened where people that have shared things, I mean, it has been really good. And you can't sit there and look at this guy and think, man, you're doing 25 years. You look like a bum. I mean, what could, you know, you got to get over that. Because you've got to be willing to hear what God's saying through them. They can't help the way they look. They can't help it that there's too much close intermarriage in their family and their facial features are defective. That's not a sin. 
It's, what, it's the way it is with a lot of cases. But I'm saying, does that mean that person can't be spiritual? You can't learn from them? So I've learned in there, you do not judge a book by its cover yeah. in every respect. So let me ask you, would you be able, you yourself, you be able to have fellowship, that mutual sharing with an inmate that is doing 25 years, or would he be too lowly? Would that be just too much beneath your dignity to talk to him? Or what about, let's bring it home, what about the people in here that are on the fringes, you could say? They're quiet, they seem to be timid. They don't have, you, you would think maybe not a lot to share because they're not one of those outspoken, out front type people. But they probably have experiences that we could all benefit from. And that is what fellowship is all about in a church. So until you get somebody to start opening up, believe me, this is true, you just don't know what lies beneath the surface. Because a lot of times it's that hidden quiet person that God is really blessing in their life. Just because they're quiet and don't say a lot doesn't mean they may be a prayer warrior. I don't know. I hope we can find that out in the days to come. You know, I've been neat meeting with my niece to have coffee on a fairly regular basis, and it's been a mutual sharing, I hope. I don't know if she always feels that way. But, you know, whether she knows it or not, I've, I have benefited spiritually from our talks we've had. I really have. It's helped me out in a lot of ways, and she's basically a relatively new Christian. What if I viewed our conversations like, we're only having this so I can give you my wisdom. You know what? We'd both be losers. We really would be. But listen, here's the thing. We have to meet to talk, don't we? Otherwise, you don't talk to people. You don't meet them. You're not around them. That fellowship never happens. So here's this spiritual fellowship. It means we're opening our lives and our hearts. You may not have to. I'm not saying with everybody. You just walk up to somebody and just start bearing your soul to them. I'm not talking about that, obviously. But we open our hearts and, and our souls to other people in the body about the spiritual things, right? That's what fellowship is. And we don't do it a lot of times, I know. It's, it, what happens when you do that? It leaves you vulnerable, doesn't it? And nobody wants to be vulnerable. But we have to have that trust like you would with your, you know, I'm, I'm most comfortable around my own family, my own blood family, as far as what I feel like, because they, they can't reject me, I'm in. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> but, you know, we don't feel that way a lot of times here, right? But we should have even more so that, be able to have that familiarity you know, so I just had a conversation with a brother the other day, and for me, it was true fellowship. And as we were talking, he's sharing about the trials. So he's saying fellowship involves sharing trials and triumphs, and he was sharing both with me. And I could just, it was one of those things, you just know the Lord's in the conversation, but his eyes, I could see his eyes were welling up with water occasionally. And hopefully I was ministering to him, but I'm saying as he was sharing how he was dealing with things God was I mean, just some big things in his life. It, it was ministering to me. It was edifying me. It really was. It was speaking to me in a lot of ways. And I was edified listening to him. So I'm not talking about we got to have this open up your heart and let's have a cry fest. Because if you know me, if you, maybe you don't. I'm not that way. I'm not one of these, well, let's have group therapy. Let's, you know, make this psycho counseling and all this. No, no, no. I'm not talking about that. But sharing from the heart. You know, there usually won't be tears, but can it be sincere Christian conversation? What that is, it's the one another's. If you go through some time, you got nothing to do with yourself, just take your little electronic whatever and type in one another, and you'll be amazed at how many one another's, we're all one another's, there is in the Bible an instruction on how we're to live with one another. But listen here, this is what we're talking about, sharing with each other. Listen, 
Hebrews 3.13 says, but exhort or encourage one another daily, he writes to the Hebrews, while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Encourage one another, he says. And listen, Paul wrote this also in Romans 12. He says, now I myself am confident concerning you, brethren, that you also are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge. And look what he says at the end. Able also to admonish one another. Able, that means they're going to be able to do it in love, not critically. And we should be able to admonish one another. And I don't know how well we do that. I don't know how well I've been able to do that. Receive admonishment and give admonishment and know that, hey, I'm not down on you. You're my brother. I'm just see something there. I'm just trying to help you out and help me out if you see it. Just have that open conversation. I've had quite a few open conversations this week. It doesn't bother me. I appreciate that. I've always been somebody, I don't like political speech. Just tell me what's going on. And I can deal with that. That's fine. You're not going to offend me. Right? That's the way we should be with each other spiritually. And that is the way this admonishing one another, encouraging one another, that is a means of God's grace to us. So not to do that, you're, you're missing out on some of God's grace in your life through others. So fellowship, the spiritual way, is having brothers and sisters praying, caring, sharing experiences of trials and triumphs, sometimes correcting us in love, and sometimes just quoting a scripture. And I'll tell you, I think what happens is we underestimate our influence we have on each other at times. We really do. So we think what we have to share isn't that important, isn't that deep, or, or this person already knows it, or they probably have been reading that verse over and over. And you know what? Don't assume that. Because most of the time, it's not true. So pray about what you're doing and share with your brothers and sisters something God's put on your heart. Give them a word of encouragement. And even if it is a verse they know, the fact that you're sharing it with them because you prayed about it, it's going to make all the difference. And that's what fellowship is. It's that sharing and encouragement with each other. And so when can this fellowship happen? The share, it can be happening right now when I'm preaching. It's a form of fellowship. So anyone speaks the word, whether they're preaching or any other way, and your heart is open, that is fellowship. So fellowship can occur when we pray together with one another, talking over meals with one another, husband and wives taking walks, family discussions. You can have spiritual fellowship, meeting friends for lunch, walking down the road. And that's what's going on here in Acts, back in Acts 2. We see in verse 46, it says, And they continued daily with one accord in the temple, breaking bread from house to house, did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart. Just in their daily life, they're fellowshipping with one another. But here's what we have to remember, that in every time this happens, you know what makes it work? That the Holy Spirit is present. Without that, it's nothing. He's got to be present to make this fellowship real. And that, that fellowship of the Holy Spirit is God's gift to us. Listen to this verse. 2 Corinthians 13, 14. It's the last verse in 2 Corinthians where Paul is signing off. But here's how he, listen, it's important what he says. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. 
So he's saying that fellowship is our word koinonia. He's saying that koinonia, that sharing spiritually and every other way, has to come from the Holy Spirit. And he prays, may that be with you all. He's writing that to the church. The koinonia of the Spirit must be with us because only the Holy Spirit can enable this fellowship that we are reading about here, this pillar that we read about in Acts 2.42, the pillar of the church. It has to be Holy Spirit empowered or it will not work. So encouragements, admonishments, giving testimonies, they have to be led and empowered by the Holy Spirit to be effective. And so let me ask you, do you all know what I mean when I've talked about that you have a special meeting and God's presence is here in a special way? It's just one of those meetings. And afterwards, it's not like to me that the presence of God you felt just leaves. It's there in your fellowship with others. And I mean, to me, it's like fellowship is just free and easy then. It's the way it is because it's the Holy Spirit enabling that to happen. And that's what we need to pray for to happen here. And in our, as we go our ways from here, because the body doesn't just dissipate because we're not actually in this room, does it? We are still the assembly. So let me just say in conclusion, I, I want to talk about somebody here in conclusion. So Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a lot of you know who he was. So everything he said wasn't exactly correct, but a lot of things he said were correct. And he was a man, it was, he was a pastor in Germany, and actually uh, he came over to America and he could have not had to go back into Germany. So people were trying to get him to stay here. And he's like, how can I leave my brothers back in Germany? Because Hitler was taken over. And he was persecuting and putting to death people. He said, how can I leave them when they need my help as a pastor? And so he willingly went back into Germany knowing that it would mean his death. So he was executed in 1945 by Hitler. Now... He didn't have the message of non-resistance. He was involved in a plot to kill Hitler. That's why he was executed. But that's the light he had. But he was a Christian pastor, and he spent two years in prison before his execution. And during those two years in prison, they just kept moving him from one prison to another all over Germany. And as a result of that, he lost all contact with the outside world. It's just him and his cell. And he considered that he lost fellowship, and he considered that loss of fellowship the loss of his most precious possession. Because until you lose it, you don't know. So he wrote this from prison. Listen, the prisoner, the sick person, the Christian in exile sees in the companionship of a fellow Christian a physical sign of the gracious presence of the triune God. He realized that, oh, he would have loved to have seen a fellow Christian while he was there. And he also wrote this, a Christian needs another Christian who speaks God's word to him. He needs him again and again when he becomes uncertain and discouraged. For by himself, he cannot help himself. And yet a lot of times we think we can do it on our own, don't we? We, just, we, got it. we live in an independent-minded country. That's the way it is. And that's why in Hebrews... He's saying a Christian needs another Christian to speak God's word to him. And that's why Hebrews, we've heard this many times, it says, Hebrews 10, let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as the habit of some, but encouraging, here's another one another, encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Listen, 
That verse was not written as a threat. Do you know why that verse was written? It's an, it's an encouragement to keep assembling together. You know why? Because these Hebrew Christians, because of persecution and outside forces, were getting discouraged and they're tempted to leave the walk with God. And he's saying, no, don't forsake leaving God's people because that is going to be your source of encouragement. And he's telling those people there, learn to speak to one another, to keep everyone encouraged. He's saying, so don't leave that. We need that encouragement. That is what that verse is trying to say. Does that make more sense? <laughs> Getting discouraged and ready to quit. And let me finish with this. Listen to these words from Bonhoeffer. His fellowship's been taken. And listen to this. It is easily forgotten that the fellowship of Christian brethren is a gift of grace a gift of the kingdom of God that any day may be taken from us, that the time that still separate us, separates us from utter loneliness may be brief indeed. In other words, you don't know, but you may be in prison like him with utter, and you don't know how soon that could happen is what he's saying. Therefore, let him who until now has had the privilege of living a common Christian life with other Christians praise God's grace from the bottom of his heart. Let him thank God on his knees and declare it is grace, nothing but grace, that we are allowed to live in community with Christian brethren. Do we look at this church that way? That it's just God's grace that he's given us, brothers and sisters here, that we can fellowship with and to speak to our lives. So I think we do well to heed those words and not take for granted the fellowship God has given us here, right? So, like I said last time, Charlie Clifton says, these people are family. We need to appreciate our family, don't we? That we have here. We need to pray for each other. We need to share with each other our goods, if necessary, and give one another spiritual encouragement at all times, don't we? In one form or another. For God has given us a gift by giving us each other. And so I'd say, let's just... My last statement is let's just not take our fellowship here for granted, right? And let's put into practice what we heard today on fellowshipping, what it means. Amen? Amen. Amen. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just thank you for the words you've given us today and just ask that you'll make it real to all of our hearts and make real to all of our hearts the need we have for one another. And I ask, Lord, that you'll just create a culture here where we'll feel comfortable sharing with one another, admonishing, encouraging, praying for one another and just basically looking out for one another's interest in the Lord, that we can encourage others in their fellowship with you, and they can encourage us in the same way. And I just ask you'll do that work in our hearts here as a church, and we just thank you for your presence here today, and that you'll continue to manifest yourself to us as we fellowship at the communion table. And we do that in Jesus' name. So before uh, we have the brothers come up, I just want to just say, so... I'm not going to, this is not going to be a teaching number two, okay? But the third pillar, I just want to, is, is the breaking of bread, which I believe that part of that is, it's, the, it's called communion, and communion is where we get our word fellowship from, and I believe it's included in that pillar of breaking bread. It's a little bigger than that, too. So we have a threefold communion where there's a meal, a fellowship meal. I believe that's part of the breaking bread, too, but it also includes communion. And so, if you will just turn... Briefly, this this is just going to be brief, believe me. I'm not getting into another sermon. But if you would just turn to 1 Corinthians 10. So I'm just 
trying to tie this in with our message on communion because it does tie in with our and fellowship, our message on fellowship. So 1 Corinthians 10, verses 16 and 17. And so we read there, Paul writes, The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the koinonia of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the koinonia of the body of Christ, the fellowship of the body of Christ? We're fellowshipping with what the Lord has done by partaking. And look at verse 17. For we being many are one bread and one body, for we are all partakers of that one bread. So by partaking of the bread and cup, what are we doing? We're symbolically declaring what should be a spiritual reality in our lives, that we have received the Lord Jesus Christ and partaking of his sacrifice at Calvary. We're declaring that. And we're also declaring that we are in fellowship with the other members that are here in this church, in his body, that body that was broken for you and I. And so, by eating the bread and drinking the cup today, you are declaring that you are in fellowship with God and in fellowship with the body of Christ that is present here. That's what you're saying. It's a remembrance of all of that, okay? So that is why you're in 1 Corinthians 10. Paul gave the admonition in 1 Corinthians 11. If you would look over there, one chapter over in verse 26, so because we're saying we're in fellowship with the body by taking communion, he says for verse 26, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death till he comes. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily. Look, we're all unworthy. That's not what it means. Okay. But he's talking about you're showing partiality within the body is what he had talked about previously. But you do that unworthily, you'll be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. You're not in fellowship, so to speak. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eats and drinks unworthily eats and drinks damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. And for this cause, many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. So let me just say our church tradition has been we have communion on the first Sunday of the month, and we'll continue that. But knowing that, I would suggest that this is not the time, I mean, it's fine if you examine yourself. Now, I'm not saying you can't, but I would think it would be better to examine yourself, as he's saying here, before you come today, like maybe the day before. And the reason is, is if it's a problem of fellowship and you've got a problem with another member, you may need to have some time to take care of that issue. And if you wait till right before we take communion, it's going to be kind of hard to do. Right? You don't want to walk up to somebody right before they're ready to partake of communion and tell them you've been hating them for three years. Do that on Saturday. Might be a good idea. So, in light of that, we will partake of communion. Amen.